This episode of Control is brought to you by Melbourne Recital Centre, where live music lives. Melbourne Recital Centre inspires our community through presenting and hosting hundreds of concerts each year, traversing all genres of music. Discover more at melbournerecital.com.au. There's no one that's female. I mean, why in the hell would I think that I can be successful? Women are not making it to the top of any profession. So it's a very male-dominated environment. We do exist in this society where women in entertainment are discarded. There are women over 40 making pop music, but you won't hear them on commercial radio. And this is why conversation between women and music has never been more important. Hi, and welcome to Control, the podcast where we speak to game changers and change makers in the music and creative industries. I'm Chelsea Wilson, your host, and in this episode, I'm thrilled to be speaking to the award-winning Yorta Yorta Soprano Artistic Director, Broadcaster, Composer and Educator, Deborah Cheatham. For more than 25 years, Deborah Cheatham has been a leader and pioneer in the Australian arts sector, creating change in the music industry landscape and advocating for First Nations representation. A graduate of the New South Wales Conservatorium of Music with an international career as a soprano vocalist, Deborah established her own organisation, Short Black Opera, in 2009, a national non-for-profit opera company devoted to the development of Indigenous singers. The following year, she produced the premiere of her first opera, Pecan Summer. This landmark work was Australia's first Indigenous opera and has been a vehicle for the development of a new generation of Indigenous opera singers. As a composer, Deborah has been commissioned to write for major Australian ensembles, including the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra, Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, Australia String Quartet, West Australian Symphony Orchestra and Flinders Quartet. Appointed as an officer of the Order of Australia for Distinguished Service to the Performing Arts, Deborah was also inducted to the Honour Roll of Women in Victoria and received an honorary doctorate from the University of South Australia. She's also received the Sir Bernard Hines Memorial Award for Service to Music in Australia, the Merlin Meyer Prize for Composition, was inducted to the Victorian Aboriginal Honour Roll, and more recently was presented with the Lifetime Achievement Award at the Women in Music Awards. In 2020, Deborah was composer-in-residence for the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra and commenced her appointment at the Sir Zelman Cowan School of Music, Monash University, as Professor of Music Practice. In this conversation, I asked Deborah about establishing her own organisation, her journey from classical flautist to lead vocalist, the One Day in January project, and her composition series, Woven Song, which will be performed November 2nd at Melbourne Recital Centre. This is Deborah Cheatham in Control. Hi, Deborah. Thank you so much for joining me on the Control Podcast. I'm so excited to be chatting with you. It is so great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. This is exciting. It might actually be one of my first podcasts. Can I say that? Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, Chelsea. Brilliant. Yeah, one of the first. Well, I wanted to say firstly, a huge congratulations on your recent Lifetime Achievement Award win from the Women in Music Awards. That's so incredible. What did that feel like for you? Oh, it was incredible. I That award ceremony has grown in stature over the last couple of years and that just shows that, I, I don't know, our society was hungry for that, mm. hungry for the recognition of what women do in our industry, hungry for the recognition that we do hold up, I reckon, more than half of the sky, can I say just quietly, <laughs> and to be counted amongst uh, those that were nominated to be, to be part of that evening, albeit virtually, because I, I was down uh, on Gunditjmara country, uh, writing some music, and I couldn't be up there in Queensland. But I feel honoured. I feel inspired. I feel like it makes me want to do more. Actually, to live up to that honour, I suppose, and to to keep making a contribution wherever I can. 
You've had such an extensive career across composing, performance, establishing an arts company, touring, education. So there's so much that I'd love to ask you about. But if we can, I'd really like to go back to early in your career. I know you played flute. What was the journey like from being an orchestra (laughs) member to taking centre stage as a soprano vocalist? Wow, orchestra member is probably a stretch. I I did play flute and I I was dedicated to it. I had some great teachers. My final teacher, I guess, in a a succession of teachers was Nicholas Nagarevich. And Nick Nagarevich was um, principal pick and uh, rank-and-file flautist for the Australian Opera Ballet Orchestra. And uh, he was also a teacher at the New South Wales Con. And I was just really so lucky to have such an inspirational, encouraging teacher. And, and, I, and I kept at it, you know, and I got my Amos and I, I played in a wow. couple of ensembles and I did a couple of recitals. But Nick always knew that my great love was opera. You know, he knew that I wanted to be a singer and, um, and we shared that love. As I mentioned, he was, uh, he was principal pick in the, in the opera orchestra. So we would have wonderful lessons where I would um, develop my abilities and my skills and my repertoire as a flautist. But then we would have almost as much time after the lesson just talking about the current season and, you know, which operas were coming up and which singers I'd just heard. And uh, it was a wonderful time to share in that. So why flute if opera and singing was always (laughs) sort of in your DNA? Why flute? Why flute? The $64 million question. <laughs> Why the flute? Because I ran out of clarinets. When I was in high school and we were being handed instruments to learn, uh, we had a wonderful and inspirational music teacher, Jennifer King. She's still a friend to this day. In fact, I spoke to her today. But when, when they were handing out instruments to learn, I had my eye on this shiny black clarinet and, and um, I could see that they were running out fast. And the, the girl in front of me in the queue, she got the last clarinet and I got the first flute. And I just, I didn't know about this instrument, this flute. How's this going to go? This is not what I, I, I didn't see myself as a flautist at that stage. But uh, my embouchure was well suited to flute. Yeah, I excelled early on. At the time, I was also uh, very dedicated to my studies as a pianist. And, you know, later in life, having had the experience of playing an orchestral instrument and also playing that great harmonic, you know, soundscape that the piano is. Uh, it's really been uh, so beneficial to my career as a composer and as a singer because, you know, I've been able to uh, study my own repertoire, uh, prepare at the piano, mm. and that's uh, – I, I don't regret those years at all. In fact, I loved playing piano and I loved playing the flute, but singing, singing was always my great passion. When did you discover opera? Ah. I mean, it's not, you know, yeah. wasn't on mainstream commercial radio. Well, more than you think. I mean, they often use um, operatic uh, music in, in commercials all the time, actually. Yeah, that's true. Back in the day, the Lakme duet was the British Airways commercial for many years. Uh, so it's it's sort of like... Um, it's sort of like the fabric of our lives, classical music, even if it's not identified as such. Uh, in high school, again, this same music teacher, Jennifer King, took me to see my first opera. Wow. 19th of February, 1979, I sat in row L, seat number 23, Concert Hall of the Sydney Opera House. Dame Joan Sutherland waltzed into my life as the merry widow. I was never the same again. Wow. So it was just like that light bulb Absolutely. kind of moment. Well, it was. It was one of those moments I'm sure everyone's had them in regard to something. How can this have been going on my entire <laughs> life? Where have I been? Where has it been? It was like a, a, a match made in heaven, me and opera. I just, I loved everything about it. And it was a beautiful belle epoque. Uh, I think Kristen Friedrichsen was the, that was the designer of that particular production. The concert hall, that magnificent sound, so wonderful for sopranos. But Dame Joan Sutherland. I mean, what's not to love? So, yeah, that was my first opera. And people will often say to me, hey, The Merry Widow, that's a pretty um, easy access point. But honestly, later that week, I had student rush tickets to go and see Yennefer by Janacek, probably the most bleak story in all of opera. 
and I loved that equally. So, um, yeah, opera was uh, – it's been my longest relationship, I think. <laughs> I often say that about jazz, that jazz was my first love. Yeah. There you go. You see, you understand. Oh, what do you think it is about opera that resonates with you and resonates with audiences? Yeah, that opportunity to tell the big stories, that narrative, the fact that all of the arts – come together to create opera you know it's it's all of the arts combined I often say that you know more is more and opera is more and uh, when it's done well uh, I think that there's no more powerful genre in the arts than opera so I think that of all the instruments that you could choose to play, and let's face it, I mean, they all have their unique quality and, and strength and beauty, but there's nothing, there's nothing that comes close to the human voice. And in Australia, we've produced mm. some incredible opera singers, not only Sutherland, but, you know, so many others besides. And we were so lucky in those, uh, in those years of Sutherland and Bonning running um, our flagship company because they they brought many Australian singers home and many other great singers to Australia as well. But many of our great singers from around the world uh, came home to Australia and sang with Sutherland Bonning over those years. And how lucky was I to be a young student getting really cheap tickets? I mean, come on, you're going to be really jealous when you hear this, but I could go to three or four operas a week and have change from $15. So, wow. Uh, you know, it, it was access and I immersed myself in uh, in the art form and uh, I, I think that it, it gives you the scope to really go deep into stories of great poignancy, dramatic stories, stories that are actually hard to tell. Opera can do that because music music is a way of, of conveying a, a, a truth that it sort of transcends the analytical and takes it straight into your soul. and That's what music does for me and opera with its combination of all the other arts besides. I think also as a Yorta Yorta woman, I would say that my ancestors knew a kind of opera, probably invented opera really if we're honest, you know, this, this coming together of painting up and wearing costume and telling a story and using music and dance. Um, this is something that First mm. Nations Australians have known for millennia. Yeah, much before the kind of, you know, Italian classic canon of opera. Hey, and I am grateful. I am grateful to the Florentine Camerata. Well done, guys, and that 300 years of history and the whole development of bel canto technique. And, you know, I, as a composer, as a singer, I, I write in that canon and with that musical vocabulary. So I don't see these these um, contributions to the history of um, sung narrative. I don't see them as mutually exclusive. I see them, I see them as continuity. Mm. And I think that that's the great strength of um, this sung story that began in, on this continent and has been practised here longer than anywhere else in the world. Every other practice of sung narrative and, and every culture has it, adds to that. And let's face it, here in Australia we have so many great cultures who come together to make up what we know as modern Australia. And so, you know, we should be really good at opera and we can be. Can you think back to your first opera performance? What was the show and, and the role and what was that like? Yeah, well, I can because whilst I've had a career as a singer uh, in recital, both here in Australia and around the world, opera companies didn't really get with the program here. They didn't really see how much value in, um, in looking at the fact that there was a First Nations soprano who was having a career and there wasn't much interest from the main stage companies. So I formed my own company for two reasons. The first one mainly was so that the singers who came after me wouldn't have the experience that I'd had of being overlooked. So there would be a company that would promote and produce First Nations stories and would help to develop and nurture the talent of First Nation singers. And that's how Short Black Opera came about. And Short Black Opera came about so that I could produce the first opera I ever sang in was Pecan Summer, the one that I wrote. This is a podcast, so you're not seeing the poster behind me as a poster for Pecan Summer. So that was the 9th and the 10th of October, 2010. I think that uh, standing on stage, singing in a role that I had created myself as a composer, 
based on personal family history, really, of the Yorta Yorta people who walked off Kamragunja Mission Station in 1939. Whilst I could say, hey, I wish I'd been able to sing those performances of Tosca that would have been so well suited to my voice. I wish I'd had the opportunity to sing all that other repertoire with main stage companies. But what could equal the opportunity of singing a work that has so much resonance for not only the Yorta Yorta people and the people who came to that that world premiere, which was on country up there in Marupna, but for Australians more generally, telling part of our history that was uh, unknown to so many Australians before Peak Summer brought it to life. What could have been more meaningful than that? Sure, it would have been great to sing all that other lyric uh, soprano and um, uh, repertoire, but what I've been able to do, what I needed to do in forming Short Black Opera and writing Peak and Summer and, and more recently Pawang Lifts the Sky, which was a commission for Victorian opera. In fact, that would have been my main stage debut with a company mm. other than my own, snatched away by just four days uh, in one of the Melbourne lockdowns last year. If I'd had that other career, if the sliding door had gone a different way, if main stage opera companies had realised that there were First Nations voices, I was one of them, and, and seen the, um, the value in that, then, hey, there are a lot of things that I wouldn't have done. I'm really glad of the things that I have been able to contribute to um, not only First Nations musicians but Australia more generally. And what a huge triumph and achievement to make your debut with your own work. I mean, I just think that's incredible and way cooler than doing something that so many other people have done before. True. But, yeah, not ideal to receive that treatment by the kind of establishment, but what you've been able to do is really, you know, make lemonade and, and create your own company. Can you tell us what it was like establishing Short Black Opera? It was so exciting and it still is, you know. The company is evolving still. We started out wanting to find who there was out there in First Nations communities that wanted to sing classically. And, um, you know, within a space of just two years, we, we had 15 company members who were more than half of them enrolled in um, performance, uh, Bachelor of Music performance degrees both in Melbourne at the Victorian College of the Arts as it was then and also over in WAPA. Uh, in WA at WAPA, and we had a really dedicated group of singers who were in their early 30s who thought that the opportunity to train classically had passed them by, and we said, no, it hasn't. Do it now. See how far you can take your career, even now, even though you're starting later in life. Let's see what can be done. And that company expanded to well, we had 30 First Nations singers in our uh, Sydney Opera House production of Pecan Summer, which uh, took place, gosh, six years ago now, in 2016. To grow that company, to see people dedicate themselves to the kind of rigour that you need to apply to develop a classical voice, to see First Nations people say, yeah, it doesn't diminish my identity as a First Nations person to be singing classically. Those things are not mutually exclusive. That was such, a, such an exciting time. And it's all been about the singers. In fact, I should say that it actually began, the company began uh, with a children's choir, Dungala Children's Choir. And uh, I knew I wanted a children's choir at the heart of the Pecan Summer story. I think that I, that was really important to me that we would have a children's chorus in that opera. They hold a lot of the drama all by themselves. Uh, it's a large uh, part for the children's chorus. Uh, Dungala Children's Choir predates the opera company by a year. But together, the children's choir and the, the adult uh, short black opera company have um, oh, just countless performances uh, great achievements for those who are all, you know, all those members who, who uh, enrolled in Bachelor of Music performance degrees and graduated. People like Shante Batsky, Don Christopher, you know, singers that have gone on to sing with other companies, main stage companies. Sarah Prestwig, who's over in the UK right now, just graduated from um, Royal Northern College of Music. 
Uh, I'm really proud of, of these musicians. Zoe Frankos mm-hmm. is another one. You know, I'm really proud of these singers who dedicated themselves to the development of Short Black Opera, being foundation members of the company, to performances of Pecan Summer, have gone on to do many things themselves. And that's exactly what we wanted to do. The children's choir is now in its, oh, I, I don't know, like what's a generation, Se- seven years? So we're into second generation, but it seems like more than that. We've got a beautiful group up on Yorta country up in Shepparton and another beautiful group down on Wadawarang country in Geelong. They are a reason for getting up in the morning, those kids. In fact, the senior, senior members and some of the alumni are about to board a plane next week to go wow. to Perth to sing in uh, the next production of Umarella, A War Requiem for Peace, which will be presented by West Australian Symphony Orchestra and their choruses. So we're really proud that DCC or Dungala Children's Choir will be heading to Perth for that performance, along with Don Christopher, Gungari Baritone, and uh, very dear friend Linda Barkan as the mezzo-soprano soloist and myself. It's going to be a big performance and, uh, and one that I'm so proud DCC will be a part of. But these days, uh, I mentioned to you that Short Black Opera is evolving constantly and for the last three years we've been developing a program for instrumentalists, going back to my early days of being a flautist and looking at what we can do to um, populate our nation's orchestras with instrumentalists and conductors. And so uh, I established Ensemble du Tala uh, in 2020, right in time for the pandemic, and uh, and the One Day in January program a couple of years before that, which really is designed to bring together all those First Nations orchestral players who want to um, pursue a career in orchestral music. And uh, last year we appointed Aaron Wyatt as the Artistic Director of Ensemble du Tala, being a very experienced violist, a composer himself and, and now a conductor. And it's been a really exciting development and evolution of Short Black Opera. How did you get the confidence to start your own company, to start your own organisation? I mean, it's pretty far removed from studying opera and classical music. I've always been a a bit of an entrepreneur. I think uh, when I realised that the kind of opportunities I thought would come my way after studying and and having a successful um, period as a student and going overseas and studying as well and then coming back and realising that yeah, I couldn't make these opportunities happen on main stage. I thought, well, I'm not going to sit idly by. I've got stories to tell. I've got things to do. So I actually established Short Black Productions uh, in the early 90s. And Short Black Productions really was where I got to exercise my love of being an entrepreneur. I think actually probably I began being an entrepreneur in year five. So probably 1975 is closer to the to the mark. I had a great year five primary school teacher who who saw that, you know, I would get my work done pretty quickly and then I would want to do something else. And rather than be bored, she would let me sit and write a play or or gather props and rehearse a play and put on the said play in the library, hmm. lash a few library tables together for a stage. You never get away with it these days. OH&S would rule it all out. But Back in the day, you know, I had a wonderful uh, primary school teacher, Mrs O'Sullivan was her name, and and she could see that I had this entrepreneurial bent and she would allow me the time to put on little performances and and that's sort of how I got going. But as I said, in the 90s, I formed Short Black Productions and um, in the absence of opportunities from main stage, I just would put on my own shows, my own recitals, and and that's that I really just carried on from there. Can you tell us a bit more about the One Day in January project? Yeah, One Day in January. So I I really felt that um, as, as I kind of gained more and more opportunities to compose and I started to see that really almost 50 of percent of my time was was as a composer and it's even more than that now I, I think I compose more than I than I perform these days and that's okay but um, as I was receiving more and more commissions I was realizing that I was not seeing one single First Nations person in any of our state orchestras in any mm. ensembles that I was writing for and I thought hey come on we need to do something about this and I got to know Aaron White and Aaron, as a violist, he'd had about 12 years casual work with the West Australian Symphony Orchestra. That's a long time to be on the casual list. 
And I just thought, we could do something about this. So I thought, how about how about I bring together anyone I can find that's playing an orchestral instrument that's First Nations. And um, January seemed to be the obvious time. And I kind of thought that, I don't know, January's a difficult time. It's such a conflicted time for First Nations mm-hmm. Australians. Every year we have the same conversation. Yep. Should we have Australia Day on January 26th? And it's, well, it's exhausting, really, isn't it? It's an exhausting Mm. It is an exhausting conversation and uh, I really feel we could find a better date. But anyway, putting that aside, I just thought, well, let's do something on January 25. Let's take back that date that in 1788 was the last day of true self-determination for First Nations people on this continent. Let's do something on January 25 that is really uplifting and is a celebration of not only who we were, who we are, who we might be, you know. So um, I knew about Alara Briggs-Patterson because I'd seen her playing her double bass and Jess Hitchcock, of course, has been in short black opera forever. She plays my daughter in the opera Pecan Summer and I've known her since her high school days and she was a bassoon, a bassoonist, can you believe? There, I've outed you, Jess. (laughs) I didn't know that. Wow. Jess Hitchcock. Not only can sing the hell out of any tune, mm-hmm. she's a great singer-songwriter, yes. but she can play the bassoon. Wow. So um, Jess, her brother Baden, also a violinist, her sister uh, Zena, violinist, and so the Hitchcock family made up about a third of the first uh, <laughs> of um, the first iteration of Ensemble Dutala. But we came together on January twenty-five. Then I, I decided that the way to attract people is to offer a scholarship, so we put that out there, the One Day in January Scholarship. From that we found Jackson Worley and Preston Clifton, cellists, and um, now we're a group of, um, gosh, I've lost count. I think we've got, we have 11 in the group now. I mean, there's a natural attrition. Some people come in and they realise, look, my orchestral playing days are behind me, but it was nice to connect and they go off and do the other thing that they're expert in. But we've got about 11 players now and uh, and we offer scholarships to um, to players young and old. So our youngest scholarship recipients are some um, a beautiful quintet of girls from Gawara College in Sydney associated with St Andrews Cathedral School. And those young girls came down to Melbourne last year. Uh, four of the five came down to Melbourne. And um, they had a wonderful time being mentored here by members of the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra and also members of Orchestra Victoria and, of course, members of Ensemble Dutala under the leadership of Aaron White and myself. And uh, those girls are now just owning it back at school and they're only in year, you know, four and five in primary school. So scholarships to really young players and scholarships to older players who are reconnecting with their instrument perhaps like me, um, were really enthusiastic about what they wanted to do in classical music and didn't just didn't get the opportunity somehow. So we don't rule anybody out. You know, if you really want to do it, we'll help you get there. That's what Short Black Opera does. That's an incredible project and must be such a amazing feeling to be able to make that kind of difference in people's lives. Another major work of yours, War Requiem for Peace, Umarella, saw you travel to New Delhi, Mm. London, Mm. Dublin, Washington, Montreux, Beijing. What was that time like for you? I have done a lot of travelling. That's true and that's uh, I'm very fortunate to have a life that takes me to all those incredible places. You mentioned Montreux. My trip to Montreux was actually a pilgrimage to go and visit the burial place of Dame Joan Sutherland. Wow. She was just such, I don't know, to me the impact that her career, not just the voice but her work ethic and everything she gave back to Australia in being here for so long, you know, and as I mentioned before with her husband Richard Bonning bringing so many great singers and performances Mm -hmm. here. And the loss, I felt it really deeply. In fact, Dame Joan passed away the day after Peak and Summer premiered in 2010, which was such a roller coaster of emotions for me to to have the premiere of my first work, to perform in my first opera, and the very next day to lose the person who had really sparked all of the inspiration for me early on. So um, Montreux, that trip was to pay my respects to Dame Joan Sutherland and to lay some flowers at her grave. Did you ever meet? I did meet her on several occasions as a young student. I can never string together a sentence. (laughs) 
I was just, I was, I, I was all over the place. I was so starstruck by her. I was so fangirling on her, but she was always really incredibly gracious and generous with her time. And I was very fortunate to have met her several occasions, but much of the other travel that you mentioned there actually is associated with another project called Woven Song. And the Woven Song series is what we're about to produce at the Melbourne Recital Centre on the 2nd of November with some of the most beautiful people and some of the finest musicians you'll ever meet, members of Melbourne Ensemble, who, of course, are all part of the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. We've got the principal winds of uh, Orchestra Victoria as well involved. We have members of uh, Plexus Ensemble, very dear friends there and also Rubik's Collective. And I should um, say right up front that, of course, one of the founding directors alongside Kaylee Melville of um, Rubik's Collective is my darling daughter Tamara Kohler, who will be coming back from London to play in that concert. And you mentioned New Delhi there. Well, New Delhi was a trip that we made with Rubik's Collective to give the world premiere of Article 27, which is one of the... Uh, a series of 10 chamber works, actually, uh, Article 27, which featured members of Rubik's Collective and uh, wonderful tabla master Pandit Ashesem Gupta. Uh, in Melbourne on the 2nd of November, we're going to have a local wonderful tabla master, Jay Dubgar, who I've worked with before on a number of projects. But um, it'll be nice to be back in the Melbourne Recital Centre, Elizabeth Murdoch Hall, with such wonderful friends. You know, I often say, you know, colleagues who are friends, friends who are colleagues, it's such a beautiful community to belong to, the arts community. And in Melbourne, I don't know, there's a special connectedness and, and coming back after those pandemic years, we're really, mm. I think we're savouring the opportunities to work together in a, in a very special way now. Other places we've been to with, with the Woven Song Project, with Plexus Ensemble or Collective, I should say, with Plexus uh, we premiered uh, My Mother's Country in, in Tokyo a couple of years ago and, uh, of course, also the premiere of Catching Breath, which took place in Singapore. And that was with the West Australian Symphony Orchestra String Quartet. Now, they're not coming across for November 2, but um, we have wonderful string quartet provided by members of the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, so that piece will be well represented. And Stefan Casamenos at the piano. Mm, uh, wow. And, one, and four wonderful soloists or three wonderful soloists and myself, uh, Linda Bach and um, Michael Petricelli and uh, Stephen Grant. So I'm going to be really proud to stand alongside those three soloists and those wonderful musicians on stage and present um, a selection of the Woven Song pieces for this concert on the 2nd of November. This episode of Control is brought to you by Melbourne Recital Centre. From October to December, the centre presents Season 4, Blossom, featuring incredible indie rock heroes, alt-country legends, humble singer-songwriters, super folk groups, ethereal choirs and much more. You don't want to miss a moment. Explore the season of live events at melbournerecital.com.au forward slash blossom. So as a composer, you've often been commissioned to create specific pieces for certain ensembles. How do you approach a commissioned composition? What's that process like? Yeah, well, for instance, at the moment, I received a commission from the Australian Ballet to write a new work for their 60th anniversary wow. season. I mean, that's a huge honour. But writing for dance, that's thats really different. Writing for dance, you know, and that's such an exciting challenge because it's its a, it's, um, a collaboration between the Australian Dance Theatre and Australian Ballet. And so um, with this process, I started out by heading off to Adelaide and watching the initial development period of those dancers meeting mm. each other and uh, that language, that language between them developing uh, because you've got a contemporary dance tradition there and you've got a classical ballet tradition. So you have those two great traditions coming together, developing a whole new vocabulary. Uh, and for me, that's a very happy space. I'm, I'm really happy in the dance space. Uh, I love the discipline that dancers mm. bring to their, to their practice and, uh, and for me, it presented a new challenge. I was given free reign over what ensemble I would write for. So I've decided to write for large orchestral forces um, with a fairly decent percussion section. 
but I really wanted to bring the full weight of the orchestral sound to this collaboration. The theme behind it is identity. So it's a double bill, and on the other half of that bill is, an, is a composer that I admire greatly, and that's Christopher Gordon. He's such a great colleague and a friend, and um, so we, we're two halves of a bill, uh, double bill there. And that's a real honour to be on a double bill with him, quite frankly. And so right now what I'm doing is um, I'm digesting all of the material that I saw created in that first, that initial development period back in um, late July and writing my own motifs. And uh, each day I'll sit down to either uh, mull over an idea or if it's ready to if it's ready to be written down I'll sit and I'll write it down I'll extemporize for hours when possible uh, at the moment I don't actually have hours to string together but I love to sit at the piano and extemporize so that I can find my way into what I'm feeling about the narrative sometimes I can't put that into words sometimes I can but I can always find a way of putting into music and, mm. and my process is to physicalise that through sitting at the piano and playing. So, you know, my, my first instrument, even before the flute, was the piano and I'm so grateful that I had, you know, six, seven years at the piano. I, I studied to grade eight. I loved playing piano. In fact, I think the thing that I most wanted to be before I wanted to be a soprano was to be a pianist. I just love the soundscape, the entire sound worlds that you can create at the piano. And even now, that will be the beginning of any composition process for me is to sit down and just play and play. When it's ready to be written down, then I'll start the process of sketching. It's pencil and manuscript paper, first of all. And then I'll start to layer things in via a software program. I happen to use Sibelius, but there are others out there. Then comes the process of, of refining those ideas or uh, actually before that I'll start colouring in, adding orchestral colours. And I think the next step for me with this ballet, which is called The Hum, and it's been choreographed by Daniel Riley, who's the artistic director of Australian Dance Theatre, the first Indigenous artistic director of ADT. He's a Wiradjuri man. So I'm going to refine what I'm writing through the process of the second development with him. In fact, I'm going to Adelaide tomorrow to see their latest work just so that I can become even more familiar with those dancers. It's like I'm I'm writing something that's bespoke for them and um, the more I get to know them as individuals, the, the more bespoke that becomes. Actually, is bespoke a bond? Is that a sort of an absolute? Well, anyway, <laughs> I, I, I want to. I want this music to relate to these dancers in a really personal way. So, getting to know them is an important part of that process. I just don't really understand how it works with composing for dance because I often think about choreography to something that's already written. Mm. So, how are they developing without? the music you know or are you watching what they come up with and then responding to that and if mm. once mm. you start putting things putting pencil to paper is that kind of going to present a whole range of problems you're going to have to keep changing things as it evolves or do they say Deborah we need more bars we need 16 more bars here or can you cut this bit down mm. I mean what you know how long is a piece of string like you could be going back and forth with them as they tweak the choreography for years <laughs> <laughs> when do you draw the line in the sand and go, this work is done, dance to this? Yeah, the piece is 50 minutes in length. We've decided on seven chapters. And so what what I have to work with at the moment are um, motifs that have been created onto the bodies. So, the you know, there are gestures, there is choreography that exists, but I'm going to expand from that with my own narrative. And I think... There will be a back and forward, but what I will essentially do is finish the composition. I'm planning to do that by the end of December and deliver the MP3 files to to Daniel so that he can um, start to, in January, decide what needs to be extended, what needs to be shorter, you know, if there are changes to be made. The score in the parts are due by a certain date, which is uh, not until the beginning of March. So I've got time between, you know, in January and February to 
further refine the choreography. But I think it's a reciprocal relationship. We've begun mm. these motifs. I'm going to take the narrative. You know, it's the sum of the parts greater, you know, than the whole. And that's the idea about a collaboration that um, there are the gestures that the dancers have created. There are the ones that Daniel has created onto the dancers and then there's my response to that. And that helps to tell a larger story. Do you ever experience writer's block or think, oh, I've said yes to this project but maybe I shouldn't have? Well, not until you just said it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Chelsea. No, you know what? It's um, The answer to that is no, but... What what I did learn very early on is that composing is not all about every single day writing a series of notes onto a page. It's not about that. It's, it's, it's about understanding what is inside you that you need to that you need to put onto that page. Getting to a point where you really can articulate what you understand about the narrative you are trying to, to share. For me, it's about understanding my own process. So I will brew an idea for months and people will look at me, you know, uh, and they'll say, have you written anything today? And I'll say, not on a page, but it's all inside me. And what I have to do is get to a point where I understand it sufficiently to then put it on the page so that's my process I think every composer is different you know I know people who religiously or, or, or um, maybe not religiously but they will make sure they write something every single day because that's part of their methodology mine is to allow that idea to fully form within me to the point where I understand it because we're talking about something that transcends language even Music transcends language, so I have to really do some really deep listening to my own thought process, my own emotions, before I can get a really well-refined and distilled idea down onto the page. And that can just be sitting with it for months. I like to drive. I like a good drive. And I'll often mm. just drive down to the bay in, in Melbourne and, and go and sit on the beach or walk the beach and allow that idea to to brew a little bit more and then and then I'll come home and I'll extemporize and then I'll just write it. Sometimes a theme will come to me and I just gotta write it straight away. Sometimes it will take um, weeks or even months to really present itself. It's it's about being patient and trusting that the idea is there. And sometimes those ideas are elusive and, and you're somewhere and you can't get it down. You, you try and sing it into your phone. and But it's also just trusting that if it's truthful, then it will stay within you somewhere and you just need to once again allow the space and the time for it to come to the surface. In 2020, you were the MSO composer in residence. But given the timing of that with the breakout of the pandemic... <laughs> How did that affect your composing mm -hmm. during that time and, and what resulted from that commission? Oh, wow. You know what? I was so fortunate that in that year, two really huge things that I needed to present were able to be presented because they were so early in the year. The first one was the Woven Song series. Uh, we did three of the works at the Australian Tapestry Workshop and I should say, the Woven Song series is a partnership with the Australian Tapestry Workshops because I'm writing pieces of music that respond to tapestries. Wow. <laughs> that in themselves respond to Indigenous artworks that are in our embassies. Uh, the tapestries are in our embassies around the world. And uh, we performed three of those works at the Australian Tapestry Workshop on the 14th of February, can you believe, 2020, like minutes before the pandemic. Wow. And then just shortly after that, my first work as composer in residence for the MSO, which was Dutala, Starfield Sky, which was written as the companion piece to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, uh, that was also able to be performed at the end of February in 2020. So if it had been a month later, none of it would have happened. 
I was very fortunate to at least get those things done, but then so much was taken away from us. It would have been the 10th anniversary of Pecan Summer. We were all set to do a 10th anniversary production and we were in lockdown. We had to cancel that. In fact, Shaw Black Opera cancelled 95% of everything that year. But as composer-in-residence for the MSO, it didn't stifle my um, my output. I, I had certain things that I was asked to write and I was still able to write them. It's just they weren't able to be performed until later on. One of the things that I had the opportunity to write was, um, well, two things. Firstly, the acknowledgement to country piece that is played before every single performance that MSO gives, long time living here. It's a short piece, but a significant one. It's played by full orchestra sometimes with a singer, which is often me, uh, or sometimes Shante Batsky. Sometimes it's, or more often it's played by uh, a quartet of players on stage and an acknowledgement is read by one of the other members of the orchestra. That's always really special to see that uh, take place when I'm in the audience. That was one of the pieces. I already mentioned Ensemble Dutala Starfield Sky, which was for a large uh, Beethoven 9 size orchestra and chorus. And um, Above Knowing, which is a chamber work, part of the Woven Song series actually for the for the Melbourne Ensemble. And Melbourne Ensemble, I'm very happy to say, will be playing that work on the 2nd of November ahead of um, coming with me next year to Milan to give the European uh, debut of that work. So exciting times really uh, eventuated out of 2020, even though uh, I have to say it was a brutal year and and the worst was yet to come for me. 2021 somehow was even more brutal. Mm, I found that too. Yeah, did you? Yeah, I'm. I, so many people I speak to, it was like we we were cheated of something. We, we thought <laughs> yeah. we'd get through it. but And I think it really, it's had a lasting impact on me that I can't fully articulate in conversation, but I've responded to it in music time and time again. You know, I think about the work Ghost Light that I wrote for Sydney Symphony, which is, you know, paying homage to all those, um, our community that basically was locked out of its natural home, theatres and concert halls, Mm -hmm. vital centres, and the ghost lights that burned in those places. Yeah. Um, You know, I I mentioned before Umarella, a war requiem for peace, uh, heading over there with Dungal Children's Choir and our soloists Linda Barkan and Don Christopher. West Australian Symphony Orchestra have twice reprogrammed that work. Twice. It was meant to go on in um, July 2020. Then they reprogrammed it to October 2021. And now we're performing it in September, late September 2022. Like such dedication from that. I've really got to hand it to them. Wazo, they really just stayed the course and remained so dedicated to that work. And I'm so grateful to them that they did. But 2020... I don't know. It was a year where I was still able to work. I was able to, as a professor at Monash University, I did all of my teaching online, but boy, that was punishing. Not Mm -hmm. only for the students, but for the, you know, it tripled our workload. Hey, first world problems. You know, I was able to work. So many of my colleagues were not. So I'm not going to complain about that, but I do have to say that it took a toll on me. yeah, we still feel the impact. Yeah, we did. You know? And I think recognising it for ourselves, for each other and being there for each other and realising that we were all in the same storm but not all of us were cruising around in, you know, yachts. Some of us were in a dinghy without an oar and it's really important that we realise that for everyone it was different and just to take care of one another as we emerge yeah. from that. Yeah, I mean, there's been some amazing things that have come out of the time frame, such as, you know, the work flexibility with a lot of companies and organisations where that's, you know, brought around more family life and balance for people. You know, that's true, but I think people need to go back into their workplaces. I know there's a hybrid way of working now, but I really really want to encourage people to think about going back into their workplaces because there's an inequity in our industry, you know, some of us just can't mm-hmm. phone it in. You know, there, there'll be people in a company who have to be there. 
and then yep. there are other people who don't have to be there. And I just wonder what that's going to do to society eventually. So even if it's just one or two days a week, I think like find our way back to going out into the world. Maybe not the way that we were, where people were working well beyond their five days a week, um, well beyond, you know, what is reasonable. Get that work-life balance, as you say, but don't discount the value of actual human contact. Oh, absolutely. Being in space together and those little incidental things that can happen together, you know what I mean? Yeah. Where the magic happens, really. Yeah, the interaction, the human side of it. True, mm. there's very little magic online, <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, I love that. I think that's a, a great quote. <laughs> there's little magic online. Yeah, there's a whole lot of junk <laughs> that you've got to wade through. Not this, not this podcast. This is like this is <laughs> No, gold. not this podcast, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I was speaking to Eliza Hull <laughs> earlier around, yeah. you know, the streaming shows and how great that was for accessibility mm. and inclusivity. And mm. so some of these concepts and I think some of the conversations that came out of the mm. lockdown pandemic situation mm. in terms of looking at the music industry and going, yeah, actually there's a lot of things here that aren't great. You know, the fact that most musicians didn't have any superannuation. Sure. So the government said you can take money out of your super, but most musicians didn't have any super. How so. dare they? How dare the government say anything? And thank God they're gone. How dare they do that and, and get people to drill down into the superannuation in that way? We're one of the richest countries in the world. How dare they do that? How dare they not support? How dare they take so long to do anything about it? You know, how dare yeah. they be so self-serving? They should be taken to the Hague. For, you know, we were at war with a pandemic, with a, with a disease, you know, with a virus. And, and I think that our previous government were war criminals in that fight. I really do. How dare they act mm. or be inactive as, as they were, you know. And our industry was just overlooked and it's been punished for so long. Not just the pandemic, mm -hmm. but all the brandest years and everything before that. So I just feel like, you know, if they are relegated now for the next 20 years, good. But let's make sure whatever government is in power lives up to the promises that they they are making. Let's keep let's hold them to those promises. Changing track a little bit, I'd love to talk to you about sure. your broadcasting with the ABC, which is actually how I first met you because you were doing some co-hosting with Waleed Ali and I was on the conversation hour with you. But for a while you were broadcasting ABC classic with Sunday Opera. Yeah. What was, that, what was that like for you? And did you ever imagine that you'd step into radio? It was so exciting. I loved it. I always wanted to do some radio. My first little foray was actually, oh, I was terrifying actually, I was doing drive time and I had all of about 45 minutes of training and I had to panel <laughs> for myself. Oh, wow. Which means I had, to operate, I had to operate all the equipment myself, which was crazy. Somehow I managed it. I, I, I can't say I always got it 100% right. I have to say that over the period of that three-year period uh, and then for, you know, those, those couple of years in, in Sunday Opera, I just loved it. I, I was in my element, you know, and I was presenting there live on a Sunday night. I felt like I was being company for people in the way that mm -hmm. broadcasters have been company for me. And um, it was funny because uh, ABC was being um, – there was a renovation going on in the building at that time. And I, every time I would come to work, I'd have a new route to my studio. You know, I, you know, <laughs> yeah, I remember bread, going there with all that? of that going you on. You have to leave some breadcrumbs so you can find your way out again. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I just loved it. I really, really loved it and uh, uh, life got busy in other ways and, and the kind of time that I wanted to devote to the narrative of, you know, I would always write stories and make sure that I was listening to those broadcasts before I presented them and, and in the end time was not my friend but I, I, it was great. I really loved it. I'd do it again in a heartbeat but I think that's maybe for a time when I'm not quite so um, – you know, quite so busy with, with compositions of my own that I need to write. So I mean, it's it's a lot. You know, you're managing an arts organisation, performing, composing, you've got education mm -hmm. duties, you know, to totally <laughs> totally get it. But it's, it's something really beautiful about radio, you know, from being a sure performer is. to then being on air. It's a completely different relationship with an audience, you know. And it's, it's so intimate. It's, it's so intimate. It's so intimate. You are right there in someone's car, in someone's living room, in someone's ears. Mm -hmm. They're listening, you know, as they go about their business. 
it's a personal relationship, you know, and the broadcasters who do it really yeah. well, and there are loads of them, loads of them on, on ABC and, and, you know, other networks as well, but ABC Classic, those people that are really successful at their job are those who understand that it is a personal relationship and there is an intimacy to it and that you are you are just talking to one person at a time, really. And I love that. Yeah, so do I. I really do. Radio quotas for Australian music is, you know, been a recurring conversation on this podcast. How do you mm. feel about the representation of Australian classical music and opera on local radio? And was it something in the forefront of your mind while you were broadcasting for the ABC? Yeah, there's so much fantastic Australian music. Let's just keep presenting it all the time, not just in November. Uh, let's have an Australian Music Month. Why shouldn't we? Uh, I think there'll always be people who are fearful of what they don't know and really the only way to get them past that is just to keep presenting it just um, in the mix and, uh, you know, of course there'll always be people who only want the things they already know and, mm -hmm. and we understand where that comes from but uh, what is our legacy? Here we are in, you know, the 21st century. We have a great tradition of composition. Well, we have the oldest tradition of composition of anywhere in the world here on this continent. Something really to be celebrated in that. And so what we just need to do as a public, you know, as a national broadcaster, uh, we have a remit. I'm saying we. I don't work there anymore. But ABC has a has a duty of care to, um, to strengthen or not strengthen. Our voice is strong. What we need to do is help people to hear it, yeah. and uh, and and I think that that's what ABC does so very well. And three MBS, I would say, you know, they do a great job. And I think really what it's about is making sure that we tell the stories that accompany, uh, you know, we we share the narrative that accompanies this new music. Because believe me, you know, back in Beethoven's day, the people in Vienna would have understood what was going on. They knew about Beethoven. They saw him in the street. There would have been a relation of someone who was going to sing in the choir or be in the orchestra and the music came, you know, right at the last minute and there were corrections and da, da There'd be a whole story, a narrative around this. And, and apart from the fact that Beethoven was a genius, okay, before you heard the music, you know, it wasn't a lock. So people would go along because they were invested in this person, this narrative, this this tradition. We have those people, those narratives and those traditions, so let's invest in them. Let's help to strengthen the reception of Australian music by just presenting it in the mix and giving people context, and I think that'll help. That'll always help an audience get there. I do believe that. We've got such great composers. And making sure that music is not just heard once, that's so important. You know, Umarella, this will be the fourth production of Umarella in Western Australia. Next year it's coming back to Melbourne back to Melbourne in uh, October and so it's now in the, in the canon of works is being repeated and and that's the vision yes. of Sophie Galace you know she looks very at important how do we strengthen the connection between audiences and Australian repertoire by making sure that it doesn't just have a premiere date but it has more than that in terms of the stats yeah we're still not hearing enough of the great compositions by women that are coming forward. We're still not hearing enough of Australian music more generally, but it is at least now heading in the right direction. Well, the only way was up. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's still pretty brutal. I think the mm. statistics from APRA AMCOS is only around 10 to 15% of their royalties annually are paid to female composers. Mm. Mm. You know, like yeah. there's a lot of money that's going to APRA AMCOS mm. across radio, mm. live performance, festivals, etc. And it's a mm. very small amount that's mm. going to female composers but you know there's there at least there's conversations mm. happening around it now and there there is action happening Chelsea, we don't trust ourselves yet because we don't understand we don't understand this country's history properly we don't trust ourselves yet and and within that women are always going to fare worse but as australians we don't trust what our narrative is who are we now we've got a king. Yeah. Who are we? Absolutely no disrespect to Queen Elizabeth II, who was an elder of that country, and, you know, putting quite aside colonisation just for one second. Okay, that country lost their elder. So I'm respectful around that, okay? But do we need a king? No. No, we do not need a king. No one needs a king, actually, can I just say.
And I don't, I don't even know if, if the United Kingdom needs a king. But that will be for them to decide. But we do not need a king. But we don't know who we are. We're still figuring that out. We don't know our history. We can't, we can't figure out who we are until we know our history. I'm trying to do as much about that as I possibly can through music. But there's more work to be done. Something we talk about quite a bit on this podcast or has come up quite a lot is around body image. And I'd love to take the opportunity mm. to ask you about body image in opera. I spoke to Ali McGregor about mm. this earlier this year mm. Uh, mm. because, mm. you know, there's a perception that mm. opera is a genre where as a woman there's not so much pressure to be skinny or look a certain way. Uh, Ali said that's completely not true. Oh, that, that depends <laughs> on the artistic director. And Ali mm. also said mm. how angry she is that so many opera companies are using models in their advertising. Advertisements yep, instead yep. of cast members. Yep. Uh, what do you think about that? I'm with Ali. 100%. 100%. What's going on? Why are they doing that? Things have been written out of the story altogether. Yep. I, it's 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 sickening. It's sickening. Uh, and, and all I can say is it's a lack of confidence in the fact that the music can tell the story and the singers will tell the story. It's it's really. I'm. Do you know what? Joan Sutherland wouldn't get a gig in Australia with our flagship company, she wouldn't have. She wouldn't have fit the bill, you know. And if she did, she would have been written out of the story. It's just, it's appalling. Do you know, they must be getting close now. Opera Australia is going to announce who the new artistic director will be. And um, I'm happy for you to be the first podcast that knows that I got close, but it's not going to be me. And even though a lot of people think it is going to be me, it is not going to be me. My bet is it'll be a white male of a certain age. Happy to be proven wrong, but every other artistic director of an opera company in Australia is a white male of a certain age, every one of them. And so what do we get from that? A kind of, you know, diversity? No, not at all. And hot models pretending to be singers on the side of trams. It's just, I, I don't know. And short black opera doesn't need to be that. We tell the story as it is. Here's what Australia looks like and we're amplifying our stories through this wonderful genre of opera and we don't need to be apologetic for that. Ali is right and I am with her 100%. I want to know who the singer is. Yes, same. One of the days when you could even look it up and see who was singing. And usually the rehearsal times are pretty ample. There's adequate time to take photos of the actual cast. So don't tell me it's all about... Oh no! Well, it's there's not, not enough time that. for the pictures. It's like, come on, you you know what opera you're doing. Usually, one, two, maybe even three, four, five years in advance. That long lead programming in in these spaces. So give me a break. So true. <laughs> so we've true. got time to do a photo shoot. You know, you don't need to use some yeah. random model. That's right. No, it's really sickening. It's sickening and it's lazy. I really think it's lazy, and I, I'm so very disappointed with the companies that have bought into that notion. You've done so much in your career to date. What do you still want to achieve? Hmm. Well, the major goal of Short Black Opera at the moment is to see uh, First Nations musicians in our state orchestras and um, other high-profile instrumental ensembles, and we're on the way to that. I mean, we put Australia's first Indigenous conductor on the stage in front of the MSO earlier this year, creating history. That was Aaron White. Amazing. Um, so I really want to I want to see that through. I committed our company, the next decade of our company, to supporting instrumentalists. We continue to support singers, but that's looking after itself now to a certain extent. We'll continue to support our singers, but I want to see that happen in my lifetime. I want to, in the short term, I want to finish this ballet by the end of December, as I've decided that I would do. I want Australia to become a confident, emotionally mature country that places art at the centre of society where it belongs, I want to continue to contribute to that eventuality because that is the truth of where art belongs. It's not, it's not the handmaiden of anything else. It's not the thing we do in our spare time. It is our means by which we know the world give meaning to it and understand our belonging. And what on earth 
What other reason are we possibly on this earth for but to understand how we can belong at a deeper level? And that's what the arts does. And without it, we're in a state of confusion. We're limited. We don't understand our belonging. We lack confidence and therefore we fear. And when we fear, then that gives rise to aggression and that gives rise to a destructive kind of society, you know, a dystopian society. We don't want that. We want to move towards what First Nations people had, an understanding of the world around them through the arts, giving ourselves a deeper connection to the continent that owns us. I've got one more question for you. What would you like to be remembered for? Mm, wow. Well, I think it's just that, that I helped to give Australia its confidence, that I made a contribution to our belonging as a nation. Yeah, I love that. Deborah, thank you so much for joining me on the Control Podcast. Thank you so much, Chelsea. It's been a real pleasure. You've been listening to Deborah Cheatham in Control. For more information on Woven Song and Short Black Opera, please check the show notes. You've been listening to Control. Please, if you have a moment, leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. It helps others to find the podcast. Keep in touch via Instagram and Facebook, controlpodcast.com. We love to hear from you. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung people, and I'd like to pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Until next time, stay safe and be kind. This episode of Control is brought to you by Melbourne Recital Centre. The centre has just launched its biannual Merlin Meyer Music Commission, a program that supports Australian female composers to create new musical works. Discover more about the commission and how to apply at melbournerecital.com.au forward slash news.